Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Hear now God's Word. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Today I will focus on part of verse 19, which reads, Now therefore you are no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. The word therefore indicates that the apostle is drawing a conclusion to his previous argument. He wants to summarize, he wants to make sure that we are not missing the main point. And on this day... When our nation remembers the attack of September 11, 2001, he wants us to see that this fallen, broken, fractured, and divided world can be put back together in Christ. That's the good news. That is the gospel. This is not an afterthought, as dispensationalism would have us believe, but from the beginning, God was planning and, and had a purpose to bring people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation into his kingdom. He started with Israel, which was to be a light to the world, but his objective was always the world. As Isaiah 11 tells us, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And of course, John 3 tells us, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, there is a unity being forged. One body, a new man. All of whom now, as we read a couple weeks ago, have access to the Father by one spirit. This is the only thing that can ever bring men together because it is the only thing that deals with what separated them, with what makes them be apart. This is far more than an organization of people. It is a living organism. It is more than a loose association or a club comprised of special interests. As we have seen, people are by nature irreparably divided against one another. There is conflict everywhere, all the time. It was true of the Jews and the Gentiles, and it is true of us. As sinners, we are packed full of prejudices, and as a result, we are full of conflict. This is true between races and ethnicities, 
nations, states, regions, cities, neighborhoods, classes, and families. All humanity is divided due to sin. That is, what is sin? It's rebellion against God. It's disobedience to what God said we should do or what we should not do. And this rebellion and disobedience is deep down in our hearts. It's who we are. It is our nature. We, like our first parents, want to be our own God. And so the world is filled with demigods all over the place. Sometimes we try to cover it, but it's always, it always has this way of popping back up. Like holding a ball under the water in the swimming pool. We're always in contact with it. And then suddenly it pops back up. There it is in front of us all. We might smile and shake hands, but just below the surface, our divisions, our pride, our prejudices are lurking and they stand ready to manifest themselves at a moment's notice. And this is true of mankind in general, and it's true of every individual, man and woman. If there is ever to be unity, there will first have to be a change in us. So how does the gospel do this? How does it bring disparate groups of people and individuals together? You see, we're not all, it's not just that we're all sinners. We are all equally sinners. In terms, uh, it turns out that our divisions are somewhat superficial. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but, and that we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All men, in all times and in all places, are guilty before God. Now, we have our subdivisions between very bad, bad, and not so bad. But these distinctions turn out to be less significant than we might imagine. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, which is the fundamental rebellion. And so the Apostle Paul asked in Romans 14, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Dr. Lloyd-Jones gives this helpful illustration He says we talk about voltage and wattage and things like that, and there are divisions and distinctions. Shall I put in a 150-watt lamp or shall I put on a mere 15? What a difference. The difference seems to be most important, but bring the two, the 15 and the 150, and put them before the sun, and your differences don't matter at all. It does not matter whether you have a taper or a candle or a very powerful light. In the light of the sun, they are all darkness, as it it were, and the differences are irrelevant and do not count at all. It is like that in the spiritual realm. We are all face to face with God. 
And when I stand in the presence of God and His holiness and His law, it does not help me if I happen to think that I am perhaps a little less bad than somebody else. The question is, am I good enough for Him? Am I good enough there? And what this gospel has done is to show men God and themselves in the light of God. And they are all condemned. They are all under a common denominator. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, wealthy nor poor, educated nor ignorant. All these things are irrelevant. Black or white, this side or that side of a particular curtain, it does not matter. All have sinned. But here, facing God in the gospel, we are brought to the dust. We are forced to see our utter sinfulness. And one by one, we see exactly where we are in His presence. Another point is that because we're all equally sinful, we are also all equally helpless. The Jews didn't realize He didn't realize his helplessness. He thought that by having the law, that that was enough to save him. He felt pride in being part of the chosen nation. Instead of being humble by God's grace, many Jews saw themselves as superior to the Gentiles. And I'm afraid that many Christians do the same when they look at unbelievers. You look out there, do you feel a little contempt upon all those people out there? And how wicked they are, and how nasty they are, and how ugly they are. Aren't you glad that you're not like them? But you are. We want to believe that somehow we are superior, and that's why God, in His wisdom, chose us. But Paul says, that says therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. You know what the law did? The law does this for sinners. The law, by the law, is the knowledge of sin. It shines a spotlight on us. As Augustus Toplady put it in the hymn, Rock of Ages, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You see, we're all just alike in our weakness, in our helplessness. You and I have no more claim on the grace of God than the worst sinner. In fact, Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners, and he lived a life that demonstrated that he believed and understood that truth. The realization of this fact, you see, though, is the starting place for our unity. We're a bunch of dust arguing about who's the dirtiest. The holiness of God shuts us all up. Naked we stand before Him, fully exposed. As Psalm 139, 2 puts it regarding God's ability to see us as we really are, indeed the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike 
to you. As a result, we have all come to the same Savior. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Ephesians 2.18, For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. You see, it is always and only by way of one person. For there is but one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the only one who can bring unity and community or communion to fallen humanity. Now, it's essential that we have the right Jesus, that is, the Jesus of the Bible, and not some Jesus of our imagination. We must have the Jesus Christ who had to die for me and for my sins on the cross, because it's only by His blood that I have access to the Father. As a result, a new work has begun a new humanity, a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have not simply improved upon our old man. We have become altogether new men in Christ. We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these we may be partakers of Of the divine nature. And so for every person who has had this resurrection to new life, the result is that now we have the same interest. We have the same concerns. We have the same desires. We have the same goals. And that's how this unity begins to come about. We now enter into a communion of love with the triune God and with one another. We become citizens of the same kingdom with the same king. We are members of the same household. We are children with the same father. And also, we now share the same enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. We now bear one another's burdens. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Moreover, we are now marching to Zion together. It doesn't matter anymore what we look like or where we came from. It doesn't matter what race we are or how much money we have or what positions we hold. Or how much education we have or don't have. Our unity, our identity is found in our Savior and Him alone. We all come to occupy this new and glorious position in Christ. Sons of God. Heirs. Eternal heirs. Now given that position... The next question that must be answered is, what are the privileges that come with that position? Paul answers this by giving us three pictures. He says, we are citizens, we are family members, and we are parts in a great temple. 
given these privileges, why should we ever envy people who are not Christians? Now, I want to note that today we only have time to look at the first of these pictures. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the other two. Paul declares that we are no longer strangers and foreigners. A stranger is someone who's among people that are not their own, and a foreigner is someone who is in a land or a place that is not their own. You see, we are either in or we are out. We belong to Christ or we don't. This is called an exclusive alternative. Aristotle said there is no mean, no halfway point between two opposites. There's nothing in the middle. It's either or. To use the images that Jesus gave us in Matthew 7, you have either entered the narrow gate or the wide gate. You're either on the broad way or you are on the narrow way. You can't be on both at the same time. As Robert Frost so beautifully and memorably put it, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. So if you have genuinely come to occupy the position of being in Christ, then you've given up being a stranger and a foreigner, and you have become a fellow citizen with the saints. You see, the church is like a city or a state or a kingdom. And when God, for example, called Abraham, this was the beginning of the establishment of a great nation. And so, too, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments for a holy nation. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus declares the establishment of His kingdom. He Himself was the King. He said, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. As citizens of this kingdom, we have been made separate. We have been made distinct. We have been made holy, set apart. And like all cities, states, or kingdoms, there are borders, walls, and gates. These provide security, protection, and definition. You can't be in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of the world at the same time. Remember, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, He, that is, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, moved us, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. As citizens, we are bound together. Citizens with the saints. We have unity around the fact that we have a common law, God's Word. We have a common ruler, which leads to a common way of life. Our king is the king of all the other kings. And don't forget, again, that you have fellow citizens. We're not in this alone. And as we talk about the benefits, and that's what Paul is emphasizing here to the Ephesians, they, not unlike us, face discouragements. They look around us, and sometimes it doesn't seem like all these things are happening today. I watch the news, I heard of this or that, or I have some other thing going on that is distracting from this. He's calling our attention back to see the big picture, the big story. 
You see, we know how the story of this kingdom ends. We know that God loves surprises. At the cross, He disguised victory as defeat. In fact, all along the way, the unexpected happens. You remember how our sovereign God dealt with the evil king Ahab, who thought he had done an end run around God's plan, this troubler of Israel. Ahab chose his own counsel, including that of his wife Jezebel, over God's prophet. He tried to outsmart God. We read in 1 Kings 22, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. Remember, God said he's going to die. And he said, I'm going to trick God. I'm going to disguise myself. Um, And he had somebody else put on his kingly robes as a decoy. And he disguised himself as a regular soldier and went into battle. And here was God's answer to that and to all the futile plans of men. 1 Kings 22:34 Love this verse. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, "Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded." You can run, but you can't hide. The kings of the earth can boast, but the king of heaven will laugh. The world mocks him now, but the battle is the Lord's. God promised Abraham over 4,000 years ago that all the nations would be blessed in him. In fact, God told Abraham to count all the stars if he could. And he said, that is the number of his descendants. That's how many citizens of the kingdom there will be. That didn't seem possible. You recall the image of the great nations that Daniel described to King Nebuchadnezzar of what was coming in the later days in Daniel chapter 2? You watched while a stone was cut out with hands, without hands, referring to Christ, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces, these great nations. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. That filled the earth. That is the kingdom of God. Paul says there is a day coming, Philippians 2 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and under, those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And John tells us in Revelation 11:15 that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You and I 
are citizens of that kingdom. And we serve under that great king. Believe me, you do not want to be a part of some other kingdom. And not only that, he tells us that we're going to reign with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? It is an everlasting kingdom. We are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And so you and I have a lot to be thankful for, and we have real reasons to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone to grow weary and discouraged, for we are broken people living in a broken world. We easily forget who we are in Christ and what our position is and what benefits we have in Him. Help us to see the world the way the Apostle Paul did as he faced great opposition. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Help us to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May we remember that you have begun a good work in us and that you will complete it. Enable us to see beyond the moment to stand on your promises, and to remember that you have given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Philippians 3, 17-21 Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So let me ask you this, what is more reliable, our own perceptions of the moment, our own forecast for the future, or God's living and everlasting word? In other words, the promises of God. Just read a few passages here. Think about that. What has God promised? 1 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in Christ are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. In the fear of God. In other words, the promises of God ought to have an impact on us if we perceive what those promises are of who we are in Christ and what He said He's doing for us in Christ ought to have a motivating factor for us to live a different kind of life. Aggressively. I thought about this and may write about it in the days ahead. Aren't you curious? I'm curious. But unfortunately, I'm often curious about the wrong things. 
curious about darkness and evil instead of righteousness and holiness. Not that curious about that. But I'd like to stir you in that regard to be curious about the promises of God. About what lies ahead for you and me. Hebrews 6, 9-12 But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation through which we speak, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And one more, Second Peter 1, 1-4. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all, all, all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. It's through the promises. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Grant, O oh, oh God, that we may not be carried away with every wind of doctrine, but that we may be firmly established in the truth of your holy gospel. That we may perfectly know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, the author of the way, the teacher of the truth, and the giver of life. Enable, O oh God, that when we read your word, we may do it with a spirit crucified to the world, to our own curiosity, to our personal interest and our prejudices. May we desire to know your will and the truth as it is in Jesus Christ and to obey it. May we love the truths of your word. Make the gospel our delight and continue in the practice of them to our life's end. Give us, O God, a love of your scriptures and a true understanding of them. Open our understanding, cause us to know this truth in order and to order our lives according to it. Let the gracious promises contained in your word quicken our obedience. Let your dreadful threatenings and judgments upon sinners frighten us from sin and obligate us to a speedy repentance. Bless now this Lord's Day with rest and delight in you and in your people. As we go to celebrate, may we do so with all our might. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Amen. Amen.